Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet with your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Oxygen Starve podcast, where we bring you your ABCs, adventures, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet. I'm Stacy, And I'm Christopher. And with us, as always, is producer Doug. Good morning, Doug. Hey, Doug. Good morning, guys. How is everything going? Everything is good. As we continue to be remote in our podcasting adventure <laughs> now that we're getting it down it's we're going to start reopening and we're going to have to do this face-to-face sometime soon i know I, i'm so excited for to be face-to-face <laughs> again no it's yeah i am too it's lasted a lot longer than than we thought it would but you know <laughs> we've all learned and grown as individuals from the experience so that's no, true and we're starting to open up a little bit more in Mono County and in the state and what we're able to do and right. the adventures we're able to have. So I'm, you know, I'm excited to be able to get out there a little bit more. But today we're going to talk about the, the scenic loop, the mammoth scenic loop. Yeah, we thought, um, you know, last episode we did talk about, you know, getting out, doing some forest bathing, getting out in some fresh air. Um, and we know a lot of you will be doing the same. But we thought for this adventure, um, especially since we're having Mammoth Lakes Tourism on later for yes. our conversation, we thought we would pick a, a more local to Mammoth uh, adventure to have and a subtle one. This is, um, it's an adventure in a way that many people may not even realize who've lived here or visited here many, many times. So sorry, Stacey, were you going to say something? No, well, I'm just, yeah, absolutely. And if you're, if you're not looking for the scenic loop road, you will drive right by it. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Like many other things in this area. Yes. <laughs> so we could we should describe it a little bit. It is the the road. If you're in Mammoth proper, mm-hmm. it's the road as you're going north out of town towards the ski area. But you kind of pull off to the right of uh, a little ways up the hill. You end up on this kind of wonderfully curvaceous, like ten minute drive, two lane road um, over the mountain and back out north to US 395 north of town. So that's why I right. think it's called a loop because there's the entrance on 203, which is kind of just east of town off of 395. And then you can actually do a loop and come back to 395. Right. And, north. and cyclists in, you know, I've, I've ridden that loop many times and it's, it's a pretty popular loop to, to cycle in the summer months. Um, oh yeah. It's beautiful. So. Yes. It's a great, great, great road to to drive and to bike. Because again, it's like if you if you're like me and you like turning the wheel a lot, it's a good road to be it, on. It is, and <laughs> it is, and it, it's it's pretty, and it's it's kind of therapeutic to drive down that road. And yeah, it is. I, I, it, I, what I like about it is it's one of those few roads in Mono County that is just like a long stretch of pure forest on either side, mm-hmm, pure pine yeah. trees. There are some vistas through the trees that you can kind of drive 
by as you're going through and appreciate, but it is mostly forest from Mammoth to 395. And buried in that forest are some great things. There's a lot of forest service roads that people can explore and and walk or, or hike on. There's the access point to the Inyo Craters. Craters, right. Which is a great, you know, it's a great family-friendly trail to mm-hmm. walk on. It's short, you know, and it, it's dog-friendly. And the craters themselves, the, the Inyo Craters, they're fairly recent volcanic activity. Like, I think six, 700 years ago they were formed, right? Right, yes, which in volcanic terms is very young. <laughs> exactly. I keep forgetting you're married to uh, a geologist, a yeah. Geologist. <laughs> but it's fun. You can hike up. There, there's little lakes in the craters, and it's right. really beautiful. Um, but they're also a clue as to why this little drive is an adventure that we would pick. So for those of you who are old enough, you know, take yourself back to the year 1980. We're in 2020 now, so it's been 40 years since the explosion of Mount St. Helens, right? Crazy. Crazy. And that was, you know, it was an eventful year geologically Mm -hmm. and seismically speaking. Um, You know, that focused a lot of attention on, you know, volcanic activity in the lower 48 that year. You know, people looking at Yellowstone, they were looking at Mount Shasta. Um, And of course, in our area, we have the Long Valley Caldera. Right. Which is like, I think it's a dorm, they call it a dormant volcano, or I forget what the classification is, Stace. Yeah, it is. It's it is considered dormant at this time even though we'll feel it kind of gurgling and we'll feel like these little baby eruptions um coming through every now and then. I think it does just to remind us, hey, you know what? I could still go at any time. <laughs> it's stomach rumbles from time yes. to time. Yes. And it rum- it rumbled a lot in the 80s. And then mm-hmm. I think in 1980 itself, the area had a 6.1 earthquake, which right. isn't out of the norm for us, but um, it's not a regular occurrence. And then throughout the 80s, um, there were regular earthquakes. And there was a lot of heightened sensitivity with Mount St. Helens as well. Right. Like They were looking at the magma underneath the caldera and seeing how it was moving closer to the surface. There were reports that that hill near the Mammoth Airport, which is right where the caldera is, that hill was rising at a at a rate of about a foot a year. There were new hot spots showing up that were killing little pockets of trees. And so everyone's sense of worry was heightened because at that time in Mammoth, there was only one road in and out of town. And if that caldera wanted to blow and you needed to escape right. town, you kind of had to drive right into the problem. So, yeah. so they created this escape route north of town. And... Um, you know, years later, it became dubbed the scenic loop. So, well, that sounds so much better to say the scenic <laughs> loop than the escape route. I, I think. <laughs> but you know, it does. If you know that information, it does. You know, and a little add a little frisson of adventure to driving the road because yes, you know those those in your craters are. Th- only 600 years old. So <laughs> it's kind of active up here. So maybe when you're driving, just, just hold on to the steering wheel a little bit more firmly and just be, be aware. aware. <laughs> Someday you may need to use that road to get to safety. So, um, yeah. So for those of you who aren't hikers or what have you, if you want to have an adventure, just drive that road and understand, um, <laughs> the, the volcanic activity of the area a little bit better. Absolutely. And it, it, it is pretty, 
You'll take some good photo ops too. It's gorgeous. And in the wintertime, you can go up and cross country ski and snowmobile. And oh yeah, it's, it's wonderful. It's fun. So check it out listeners. The next time you're here and get a, gain a better appreciation for the, the volcanic side of mammoth lakes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Take a deep breath and we'll be right back. You were dialed in to Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet, originating from the slopes of Mammoth Mountain in Mono County, California. You can find us at SoundCloud. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us at OxygenStarvedPodcast.com. Just make sure you find us. Welcome back, listeners. We are at the B, the book section of our podcast, and I'm really excited for this week's conversation because it was a book I should have read many, many, many years ago, and I just read for the first time, and I I found it so delightful. Um, And Stacey, you picked it, so I'm really grateful you did. Do you want to tell us about it? Sure. So the book that we read to discuss this week is is a classic. It's Cannery Row by the great John Steinbeck. And it was written in 19 or published in 1945. And it tells the story of a bunch of characters who all live on Cannery Row. And this is in the for those of you who might not be familiar with it. Cannery Row is located in Monterey, California right on the water. And it was where all of the canning operations, sardine canning, tuna canning, where all of that took place back in the early part of the 19th century and, or the, the 1900s, sorry. Um, and, um, the characters in the book are very vividly described um, it's very apparent that Steinbeck really liked these people almost to the point of maybe these were people he wanted to hang out with. Um, or did hang out with maybe. Or maybe did. Yeah. Well, and, and, and in point of fact, the, the main character of the story, Doc, is based on one of Steinbeck's best friends, um, a gentleman whose name is Ed Ricketts, who was a marine biologist um, back in the, the day and Steinbeck and Ricketts actually hung out together. Steinbeck invested in Ricketts, one of Ricketts, um, labs, laboratories, and, um, they were really good friends. And Doc actually appears in several of Steinbeck's books as, as like different types of the same person. So, yeah, it was fascinating to me. I mean, we should care con- contextualize that um, Steinbeck lived in Monterey near Cannery Row right. before it was called Cannery Row um, for for many years during the Depression, right? Right, and he he grew up in Pacific Grove, which is the town just over um, next to to Monterey, and. Um, yeah, you're right. Cannery Row was actually called Ocean View An- Avenue before it was called Cannery Row. Yeah, but you know he would have known these people. He would have seen mm-hmm. these people just walking out of his house or what have you. And these would have been characters in his life, probably that he is loving. To your point, lovingly depicting on the page. Right. And what's interesting about this book is that it is 
very thin on plot and heavy on character development. So it is the characters that drive this story forward and the, the little, it's almost like a series of vignettes. Did you feel like that when you were reading this? Oh yeah. So, so the format of the book is, it's a really short book. I don't know if you'd call it a novella, but it's a short novel. And the, and the paragraph, uh, the paragraphs, the chapters are just often just a few paragraphs long. And Mm -hmm. sometimes the chapters just feel like they drop out of nowhere. Like he's suddenly talking about like a different character that he hasn't introduced before and may not pop up again, but it is just vignettes, you know, and it, it, and that's kind of what makes it magical because if you're walking down a street, if you were walking down Cannery Row at the time, each block could be a different vignette. Right. Exactly. And of course, you know, there, there are, we've, we've referred to their other characters in, in the story and, um, they're a bunch of ne'er-do-wells, uh, these guys <laughs> who, they just kind of scrape together their living. They don't have a whole lot of ambition for anything more. They, they end up, these five gentlemen end up living together in what they call the, uh, palace flop house. Um, and they come to live in this this building by bartering with the grocery store owner who <laughs> buys the building, who owns the building because another ne'er-do-well customer couldn't pay his bill. <laughs> and talked him into it, right? Right. It's, a, it's fascinating. So um, one thing I like about this, you you know it's a character-driven book um, from the very first brief paragraph because yeah. that's what he sets up. And I'm just going to read it for our listeners because this paragraph hooked me into the book right from the get-go. So um, I'm quoting from him. Cannery Row in Monterey in California is a poem, a stink, a grating noise, a quality of light, a tone, a habit, a nostalgia, a dream. Cannery Row is the gathered and the scattered, tin and iron and rust and splintered wood, chipped pavement, weedy lots and junk heaps, sardine canneries of corrugated iron, honky-tonks, restaurants and whorehouses, and little crowded groceries and laboratories and flop houses. Its inhabitants are, as the man once said, whores, pimps, gamblers, and sons of bitches, by which he meant everybody. Had the man looked through another peephole, he might have said saints and angels and martyrs and holy men, and he would have meant the same thing. It's great, isn't it? It's so... It so characterizes the whole book. Right. Every character that he introduces in the book fits into that first Mm -hmm. paragraph, right? Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's... For sure. What I also just found interesting was, you know, Cannery Row, you kind of understand, as you you said, it's it's for processing the fish and everything. And I would not have thought that there would have been a laboratory there. But, of course, it made absolute sense. It was gathering specimens, right? Right. Yep. sea creatures to for labs to test medicines on and that sort of thing. So right. it was just kind of, I just found that an interesting juxtaposition because doc, the guy who leads that laboratory is a, is a main character in the book. Mm-hmm. Right. And he's kind of like everybody's best friend, dad, priest, <laughs> 
caretaker. You know, he's just kind of there for everybody all the time. And one of the sweetest parts of the book is the, these, the gentlemen who live in the flop house, the guys who live in the flop house, they recognize this about doc and they decide that they are going to throw him a party. (laughs) And the, the way they go about doing this and how, how the party ensues and what happens after that in the aftermath is it's hilarious. I just found myself laughing out loud at the way they approached everything. And it really fits in with how he gives each of these characters a unique personality, but it's a, again, it's kind of a a loving personality. He sees the good in people. Mm -hmm. And so of course these 'er ne'er-do-wells who've kind of conned themselves into taking over this fish processing warehouse and turning it into their, what they call their palace flop house, that of course they all kind of have hearts of gold at the end of the day. They want to do good. So does, so does um, Dora, the woman who runs the restaurant and the whorehouse, she's got a heart of gold. So does the, um, there's, uh, the guy who owns the bodega, the grocery store, Lee Chong, he's got a heart of gold, you know, and they all understand that everyone's on the grift in some way. So when, you know, Mac, the, the leader of the guys who are in the flop house, who is so lovable himself is conning Lee Chong out of his truck and also conning his way into using the flop house. Lee Chong, absolutely is aware of what's happening. He knows he's being conned. Um, But he just kind of plays along with it in a way, you know, because he's part of that community. And, and he also understands, I think he says at one point, he knows that if something were to happen to him or something like that, that Mac and the guys would have his back. Right. I mean, it's almost going to like, they're going to take care of him, you know? So he kind of lets them occupy this, old canning facility kind of with a wink and a nod, you know, that he knows he's never going to get rent from these guys, but they're, they've got his back no matter what. Yeah. And, and so to your earlier comment, you know, the Mac and the guys want to throw the doc a party because they appreciate him. Mm -hmm. And that's actually, I think the, the big plot of the book is that, right without really giving a whole lot away, there's two parties. The first one goes awry. won't go into the details, but it's just a complete failure. And so they throw him a second party. And um, that's kind of what all the action hinges around in this short novel. And they get up to hijinks, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So uh, Doc is someone who collects specimens and he needs to get like hundreds of frogs. And so, um, he kind of enlists Mac and the guys to go get him hundreds of frogs from up in the Hills. And that whole scene just turns into one of, to me, one of the funniest portions of the book, just their little adventures going up to frogs. And it was, and it was interesting because when that's happening, Doc is taking a journey of his own right. to go to La Jolla to get octopi right. and other samples. And so they, Steinbeck kind of juxtaposes the, the guy's journey and their <laughs> adventures <laughs> versus Doc's, which I thought was very, was, was interesting to s- see the difference. 
And he even gives one of the guys a little sub journey, right? Because yes. <laughs> the guys have to con Lee Chong, the store owner, out of his old Model T that isn't running to go up and get the frogs. And they succeed in doing that by by convincing Lee Chong that they'll get a mechanic to fix his truck for him. And so the mechanic, who's great, comes along with them halfway on their adventure to go get frogs. The truck breaks down. The mechanic's like, I'll hitchhike back into town and get a part. Um, yep. And then he never comes back. He and never Steinbeck, comes back. <laughs> Steinbeck tells the reader that you know he doesn't come back for 180 days because that series of events he ends up in jail in Salinas just trying to get a, a, a Model T part. But the guys don't know that, right? No, so, no. You know, it's just so beautiful the way Steinbeck just says, and they didn't see him again for 180 days. <laughs> it, was like, <laughs> it was kind of biblical, but kind of made a lot of sense, you know, in, in a way. It's just a matter of fact. It was, it was, it's one thing that I love about Steinbeck's writing is that he doesn't, when he doesn't need to use a lot of words, he doesn't. But he does, when he does use them, he uses them to great effect. And Absolutely. So I want to read another paragraph. I highlighted it just because I thought it, again, was just so Steinbeck in such a beautifully written paragraph where he gives personality to everything, including Mm -hmm. inanimate things, you know? (laughs) So while the guys are up there, um, they're near the Carmel River. And so he's describing the Carmel River. The Carmel is a lovely little river. It isn't very long, but in its course, it has everything a river should have. It rises in the mountains and tumbles down a while, runs through shallows, is dammed to make a lake, spills over the dam, crackles around boulders, wanders lazily under sycamores, spills into pools where trout live, and drops against banks where the crayfish live. In the winter, it becomes a torrent, a mean little fierce river, and in the summer, it is a place for children to wade in and for fishermen to wander in. Frogs blink from its banks and deep ferns grow beside it. Deer and foxes come to drink from it, secretly in the morning and evening, and now and then a mountain lion crouched flaps, laps, a mountain lion crouched flat, laps its water. The farms of the rich little valley back up to the river and take its water for the orchards and the vegetables. The quail call beside it, and the wild doves come whistling in at dusk. Raccoons pace its edges looking for frogs. It's everything a river should be. So he has taken this little paragraph and said... It has everything a river should have, and he's closed it with, it's everything a river should be. So he's kind mm-hmm. of like, it's like this little bucolic scene that he's setting. Right. And that's a scene that could happen anywhere here where we live in the Eastern Sea. Yeah. This describes many of our little rivers. Absolutely. And he does. He uses language so beautifully to describe yeah. that scene. The other funny thing is, and you talked about like these little vignettes that pop out of nowhere. There's one chapter, I wrote it down, chapter 31. I'm not going to read it, but I, in, on my iPad, it's less than a page long. <laughs> and it's the story of a gopher who has built, found the perfect place to build his gopher hole and right. attract a female gopher and raise lots of little babies over their life. And he just describes the gopher building the perfect hole and how it looks and how he waits for a female and what have you, and then ends up not being able to attract a female. So he has to leave and move up to a dahlia patch where, where people <laughs> set traps. And first of all, you I was reading it like, where did this come from? I mean, it's right. delightful delightful little read plopped within the middle of a novel. Um, but then I was thinking about it afterwards after I finished the book and I thought maybe that's a, that gopher is Steinbeck in some way. Maybe there's a little bit of autobiographical 
writing going on there and that I know he loved living in Monterey, um, but he ended up like living the rest of his life in New York city, I think. Um, yeah. So it was just kind of, it was interesting. I I, I love that. I hadn't thought about the gopher being Steinbeck, but that does have some sense to it. I mean, I get that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one thing when I was doing some research behind the, this book, um, you know, it was, as I said, it was published in 1945 and that's right after world war two. And before he wrote this book, Steinbeck had been talking to some soldiers and they said to him, just write us something that's not about war. Mm. And that was the inspiration for him to write this book. Oh, that makes sense. And I thought, you know, having read that after I finished reading Cannery Row, that, you know, he was, he was inspired to write a book, not about war. I thought, what a perfect time for us now to be reading a book like this. Yeah, right. That celebrates the best of humanity. Right. When, you know, we have, we're, we're living in kind of turbulent times ourselves right now. It's really nice to remember that people generally do have good hearts. They do. And even when they're, you know, this is depression era, as you said, they, mm-hmm. these guys took over a flop house. There's a young, uh, I don't know if they were a young couple. There's a couple who actually live inside a, a boiler yep. <laughs> and, and rent out steel pipes for single guys who just need a place to sleep at night. Right. Um, <laughs> these are, these are people who are challenged, you know, yes. um, there's, there, none of them have two nickels to rub together. Right. And, you know, there's drama, there's drama in the yeah. book. You know, there are things that happen and there are reasons why they're living in this, this area or this situation. But again, it's not that drama isn't so central. It doesn't drive the narrative. It's as you say, it's more about just who they are and how Mm -hmm. they get along and, um, how respectful he is of those, those characters. Right. Yeah. And, and their humanity and their, and their innate goodness, I think. I think so. And I, I, you know, again, just I've never been to Monterey. I, I've been to the aquarium, but I don't remember going anywhere else in town, you know. But I would love to go there because reading this just, it just, he just made the place so vibrant. And, yeah. and I just thought, wow, this is like a quintessential California novel. Well, I, I think he did, he did such a great job that even though this was written in, published in 1945, it's, I I go to Monterey. I have a meeting in, that takes place in Monterey every year. So I have been there every year for the last 10 years. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I could really see, like, where what he's talking about. It's still visible today. Some of yeah. those in the, the opening chapter that you read, there are still some of those elements, believe it or not, are still in existence today in and amongst the, you know, the five star hotels that line Cannery Row now as well. But do they, um, still, do they still can fish? There is some of that, but not not to any extent. Like, okay, I think there might be one cannery left. Yeah, um, but you know, you're. You know, you're walking right next, literally right next to the Pacific Ocean as you walk along Cannery Row. And right. 
you know, so you, you know, you can hear the, the sea lions and see the sea otters and right. you have that fishy smell and the, you know, Fisherman's <laughs> Wharf is, you know, a very vibrant part um, of Monterey right before you enter Cannery Row proper. Right. Um, and there still is, believe it or not, right along the ocean, there is, there are still a couple of empty lots that are kind of a little <laughs> intimidating to walk by at night if you're by yourself and, um, you know, that are not the prettiest of places, but, you know, fit in with that description that opens the novel. So, um, yeah, listeners, if you haven't read Cannery Row or if it's been a really long time since you read it in high school or whenever you had to read it, pick it up again and, uh, you know, enjoy the richness of the characters and the, the beauty of the descriptions of the Monterey and Cannery Row area. And then it's let short. us know what you think. Yeah, it's quick. It's quick. <laughs> but yeah, let us know what you think. Stacey, I, thanks again for suggesting this book. I think it was just what we needed to read right now. I think so. I agree. I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> okay, listeners. So take a, take a breath and uh, we'll be right back. Oxygen. A colorless, odorless reactive gas, the chemical element of atomic number eight and the life-supporting component of the air. Starved. Suffering a severe and damaging lack of basic material and cultural benefits. Oxygen Starved Podcast. A colorless, odorless, culture-packed, nutritious podcast considering books, describing Mono County adventure, and engaging in informative conversation with colorful Eastside Sierra locals. Download it now. Welcome back, listeners. We have arrived at the conversation, the C part of our podcast, and today we are delighted to have with us Mr. John Erty, Executive Director of Mammoth Lakes Tourism. Welcome, John. Welcome. Hey, it's great to great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, we're we're so pleased you could take some time to join us. I know there is a lot going on with our next phase of reopening starting. Um, you must be very busy with that. But before we get into all of that, can you tell our listeners what was the journey that brought you to Mono County and Mammoth Lakes? Absolutely. I've actually been very fortunate to work in the hospitality and tourism industry since I was 15. I started ski patrolling in a small little area, ski area in New Hampshire uh, that had night skiing. So I became a national ski patroller, fell in love with the the sport, the lifestyle of uh, resort town and skiing, and was fortunate enough to do a, a co-op from Northeastern University in Vermont at a resort uh, called Sugarbush, and spent four years there basically as an intern. And then uh, it opened up the opportunity for me once I graduated college to become the director of sales for a ski area in New Hampshire, a fairly small ski area that was quickly purchased by a much larger uh, resort and ultimately turned into a company called American Skiing Company that we owned nine resorts across the country. So it was very uh, fortuitous, my timing, and was able to gain my vice president of marketing and sales title with them at the age of 25 and wow. spent tw 12 years with them, which was uh, amazing because we purchased resorts across the country and uh, joint programs and all those fun things. Uh, and then back in 2005, I had the opportunity to arise to become the vice president of marketing for all 26 ski resorts wow. in Colorado. 
and Colorado. So my bosses were Steamboat, Vail, Crested Butte, Telluride, all the all the uh, wonderful resorts in Colorado. And then when Vail decided they didn't want to play that game of an association anymore, uh, I went to Grand Targhee in Wyoming for a couple mm. of years. Which I love is, that uh, resort. Ab- <laughs> it's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, you don't see the sun till April, but you also <laughs> see tons and tons of snow every day. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, and then when I was there, I actually went and um, was interviewing for a chief marketing officer position at Telluride Ski Resort and had dinner with a friend of mine who ran Visit Telluride. And he told me about this great opportunity that, that he was pursuing in Mammoth Lakes for Visit Mammoth. And uh, we, I left and called him and said, hey, I can't move my family from remote Wyoming to remote Colorado. And he said, well, my and I pulled myself out of the Telluride job offer. And uh, he said, well, my wife doesn't want to move to Mammoth. Do you want me to hook you up with the headhunter? <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to them. And I, I talked to the headhunter on a Friday, uh, met with the board, uh, vid- video conference with the board the following Monday, flew out here the following Friday with my family and took the job. So wow. uh, that was 10 years ago this July. Congratulations. That, you just described like the living the dream career path for so many <laughs> people. <laughs> You know, I've been very fortunate. Um, it's funny, growing up, my dad's an architect. And so when I told my dad I wanted to get into the ski industry, he didn't feel it was a profession. And so when I got my first job out of college, I called him one day and I said, Dad, I have business cards and I have a telephone and a desk. So <laughs> I, uh, It's a real job in the ski industry, which was, uh, yeah, I think he felt I was going to be a ski bum and, and I was able to figure out how to be a ski bum, but also do a job that I never felt uh, that I, I worked a day in my life. And I feel the same way with uh, the tourism side here, I think we're in the midst right now of of doing budgets for next year. And frankly, budgets are the only time of my uh, year usually that I feel like I'm uh, I'm not just uh, enjoying what I'm doing and trying to invite people to come have fun with me. <laughs> so, is this a is this a particularly more stressful year for budgets? Are you feeling with everything that's been going on? Yeah, it's quite a bit more stressful, mainly because we we recognize that we're probably going to be about $3 million short on revenues uh, compared to what we've had in the past. And obviously, with that come uh, pretty substantial cuts to our efforts. Mm-hmm. And that's that's tough because obviously sure. trying to figure out how, how we can still get here, uh, get people here. The biggest challenge right now is that is that we just don't know. The unknown is so difficult right now um, because we anticipate that we're in a great spot to recover. And I think that we have an opportunity that a lot of places don't, um, where we are naturally socially distanced here, whether it's hiking, biking, fishing, golf, skiing. You know, if you think about skiing, with the exception of um, base lodges and gondolas, you know, if you're standing in the lift line, you're you're you've got three feet of ski in front of you and three feet of ski behind you, and the next next person and the next person does too. And you're wearing your face coverings and your goggles and your helmets. And you know, my my guess is there won't be a singles line anymore. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, there, those are things that we can, that we can anticipate. And I think that the, the idea and all the research that we've looked at are that people are going to want to go to places that are familiar, places that are safe, places that they know, mm-hmm. and they're not going to be flying to Paris this summer. They're not going to be even going, probably going to Hawaii there. They, they may not even be getting on planes in general. So the fact that we have 38 million people within six hours of us is pretty fortuitous. Right. Um, uh, it's, it's crazy. Also, um, probably at least 10 years worth of momentum attracting those people here, right? They have a comfort level with Mammoth and the Eastern Sierra to begin with in many cases. Absolutely. And this, you know, in the, in, as I mentioned, I've worked in Vermont, New Hampshire, Colorado, Wyoming, and now California. And I've worked for, uh, again, 26 resorts in Colorado. I worked for a company that owned nine resorts 
and I've worked individually at multiple resorts, and I've never lived in a place that has more loyalty than Mammoth Lakes. Right. And that's that's not just the ski side. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the fishing side. Um, Bart Hall, the Fred Hall fishing shows down in Long Beach and Del Mar. Right. Um, Bart Hall, who owns the fishing shows, his father started those shows. Bart is now 74. Bart started coming here when he was a baby. Wow. And, 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 so, and so when I go out fishing with him in the summer and we float on Convict and he's talking about, you know, being here as an eight-year-old and camping and doing all these other things, that's the sort of loyalty that we have. And, and Bart has been an incredibly good friend of, of, of Mammoth Lakes and the Eastern Sierra in general because he loves this place. And there are so many people that just have that, that similar affinity and they have that generational experience whether they came here with their grandparents or they're bringing their kids here now, it's um, it's it's an amazingly rabid loyalty, which um, which will serve us incredibly well in this recovery. So, how can you describe what it's like marketing Mammoth Lakes in the area? Because it is it is different from winter to spring to summer to fall. The activities change. There's such seasonality here. How do you keep a constant voice out there and and meet all those different audiences? Yeah. Well, firstly, the the uh, Mammoth Lakes is an embarrassment of riches beyond compare to anywhere else that I've ever worked. You know, I, I look at places like uh, Colorado and sure, um, you know, some of the resorts have mountain biking, some of them have hiking, but you know, here we have world-class rock climbing that is, it's, it's almost an also ran in our messaging because it's so far down the conversation <laughs> tunnel. You know, we've got 85 miles of mountain biking on the mountain. Um, you know, thanks to Bill Crockroft, he was one of the, the pioneers in mountain biking and this place is known as a Mecca for it. So, you know, the messaging is definitely different, but what we're selling is we're just selling the overall experience. And in fact, a couple of years ago, probably five years ago, we went away from necessarily the specific marketing of fishing or the specific marketing of mountain biking or the specific marketing of hiking. And we just sold the experience and the beauty. And, you know, when we do our research, which we do pretty extensive research every year, it comes down to scenic beauty and, and just the scenery more than anything else. So whether you're hiking or fishing or biking, that scenery is, is the biggest piece that people are coming here for. Um, I've got a group coming in, uh, a couple of guys coming in next week that are working on a project with me. And um, because of the, the lodging ban in Mammoth, they're coming in June 18th. And uh, I sent them pictures of Convict Lake and told them to, to get a cabin over there. And they wrote me back saying, is this a real place? <laughs> You know, they thought I like took a postcard and took a picture of it. So it's it's um, it's amazing. I think that that loyalty, I think there are a lot of places that that have that. But I think that this place not only has it, but the word of mouth, the aspirational uh, desire to come here. I, growing up on the East Coast, I only knew about um, Mammoth Mountain because I was in the ski industry and Les Otten, who owned our company, was good friends with Dave McCoy. And so we actually we actually uh, tried to buy it mammoth back in the early 2000s and um so that's the only reason i knew about it but from the east coast it's hard to get here and it's really not on the radar because you have to fly over colorado and utah and you know most of my friends would either go to whistler or you know in the spring it was even cheaper for me to fly the six-hour flight to geneva and go skiing in switzerland so um you know i think that the 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 challenge isn't necessarily just getting people here but it's getting the right people here and getting the people that are going to spend more time you know as most ski areas and most destinations suffer with there are times of the year that are slow, whether it's spring and fall or whether it's midweek winter. And so that's where we that's where we've really gone after that destination traffic with the idea that if we can get somebody to come in here and stay Sunday through Thursday, mm-hmm. uh, they're going to be spending a lot of money when there really aren't too many people in town and they have a great experience. 
Right. So, in you know, I've been here now for 17 years, almost 18. And, you know, when we first came up here, there was what was referred to as the shoulder season. I don't really mm-hmm. feel like there is a shoulder season anymore. What does, from a tourism aspect, what, what do you think about that? Is, is the, has this mm-hmm. really become a year round, truly year round destination? It definitely has. I think that when I came here, there was really a big push. Um, you know, th- there was a feeling that the that the winter takes care of itself, which, again, um, weekends only Southern California. Sure, it kind of covers weekends only Southern California, but this is a world class resort that should be getting people from New York and Boston and Chicago and and uh, UK and Australia and all those places. So there's still opportunity in winter, but we've really focused on the summer. And then mm-hmm. once we once we seem to really get the summer up to where it is now. Uh, we started to really expand that so that we saw June and September now become uh, million-dollar TOT months. So that was really the goal is to spread it out so that the shoulder seasons were far less. I remember a couple of years ago talking to Joni Schaller from Roberto's and having her say, you know, we really don't have a slow season. We have mm-hmm. a couple of weeks that slow down. Right. And I think yeah. that's been the goal because, you know, you really can't sustain business if you have really six months of the year where you're busy. Right. And so back in 2000. I think it was 2015, my board, we set out to set a goal of 10 months of viability, meaning that we had at least 10 months where we achieved a million dollars in TOT. And so right now we're at nine. Uh, the, the 10th month is going to be difficult because May and October are incredibly slow. And then November, which is the other month, is hit or miss. If it snows November mm-hmm. 1st, we could probably hit it, but it's not sustainable. So uh, that's right. been the goal because we want to make sure that the businesses have consistent business, not that we have, um, you know, we have huge peaks and huge valleys. We want to level that out a little bit. And for our listeners, John, explain in case they don't know what TOT is. Absolutely. So transient occupancy tax. So uh, that is the bed tax that people pay when they come into town. So if you rent a room at the Westin or at 1849 condos, uh, you pay 13% TOT. And then there is the 1% T-bid on top of that. The TOT gets split up in multiple places. Most of it stays with the town general fund. Uh, we receive about 18% of the collections. So um, it's usually about $2 million that MLT receives from TOT. And then when we put the T-bid in place, the Tourism Business Improvement District back in 2013, uh, we have a 1% uh, additional assessment to the business that goes on top of that that comes directly to Mammoth Lakes Tourism and really can't be redirected. And that is dedicated to uh, all of our marketing efforts. There's no overhead uh, within the T-bid. It's all uh, effective marketing dollars. Okay, and, and so- I will. I, I just I'm just going to chime in really quickly for our listeners who haven't looked at visitmammoth.com. I encourage yeah. you to. When I was moving back out here from the East Coast a couple years ago, I used that site to describe where I was moving to, and people were just blown away. So, congratulations on that website. Yeah, uh, work you guys have been putting in. Yeah, thank you. Again, back in 2010, when I came on board here, um, basically the the tourism and rec department had been part of the town. There was a big push to privatize that. So we are actually not a town entity. We're a 501c6, which is a nonprofit for promotional purposes. And, um, you know, really there was just a push to say, hey, we need we need focus on specifically on the tourism and visitation standpoint. And so when I came on board, the website was pretty poor. And we hired a digital, uh, a digital marketing director that got that all taken care of and got it really where it needed to be. Because no matter what we do for advertising out there, it all directs to visitmammoth.com. And so that website has to be the resource for everything that people can possibly want to find out about the area and then also how they can 
uh, plan their trip as well. So thank you. It's a it's um, something we're proud of, and we're actually. It's funny as 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 nice as it looks right now. Some of the the uh, back of it is a little bit antiquated, so we're we're uh, we're we're probably looking at rebuilding that. Obviously, again with a three million dollar cut to our revenues, chances are that might need to uh, be there for another year. But hopefully, we can get back <laughs> on this horse, get back on this horse, and uh, and get that the coffers full again. Right. So, John, as we record this, we're at. We're on June 11th, but this episode will go live on June 23rd, I believe. Can you tell our listeners what what will the status of, of Mammoth Lakes be on June 23rd as far as tourists coming up here? Yeah, I think that there's um, there's a general feeling that once we can open back up, that because of that loyalty and because of the interest that people have in getting out of the cities and getting back to nature, um, that we're going to be busy. I think that's I think that's true to a certain extent, but we still need to invite people back because they're being lured by Lake Tahoe, Big Bear, mm-hmm. uh, Arizona, Utah, wherever, um, and we need to make sure that we continue to invite those people. Uh, one thing that that concerns me, we just got our latest data from Visit California yesterday from a survey that was done on the ninth, which was two days ago, and it was um, it was disheartening to see that there's more than fifty percent of Californians that are saying that they're still going to stay home and go out as, as little as possible. Mm, interesting. Uh, then there's thirty there's thirty six percent that say that they're you know that they're they're thinking about going out, but they're only going to go to places they feel safe. Now, granted, we we think that we're that location for them, so that helps us. Right. But there's only eight percent of the people that say that they're going to resume their normal uh, their normal uh, travel plans. Eight percent. So that's that's kind of scary. So. We do need to get out and invite people, but I think by when we start getting into you know June nineteenth is the official opening. I think that we're really focused on that on that July timeframe to really get the the ball rolling. I think businesses are going to need a couple of weeks to get into the swing of things and make sure that they're fully fully uh, following all of the guidelines that are being set out there as far as masks and, and cleaning and protocol and what they can and can't do. And so I think there's going to be some learning to it, but I think for the most part. We've had 12 weeks now to get ready for it, and I think that once we are able to open, hopefully our visitors, you know, our big our big messaging for Mammoth Lakes Tourism is going to be, yes, welcome back, but here's what you can expect when you get here. So mm-hmm. don't expect to take the shuttle down to Red's Meadow. Um, you know, don't expect to be uh, 100% of restaurants occupiable. Um, but on the flip side, we're also going to be letting the guests know what we expect of them. And right. so our sustainability messaging and our responsible tourism messaging is going to be huge, whether it's from hiking and, and uh, etiquette for passing people on trails mm-hmm. or whether it's, um, you know, hey, we're just asking you to wear a mask. We're not asking for your kidney. Um, <laughs> and just and just setting the expectation for people, both on both on the visitor side, but also on the community side, because we right. want to make sure that people respect the community. I think I think there's been a lot of concern about the dispersed camping because we haven't had the the lodging properties open and people are just kind of camping wherever they want. They're camping right on the Owens river. Um, right. You know, they're yeah. not, they're not, they're not, uh, you know, they're not um, using the setbacks that they should be. They're leaving waste. They're leaving trash. And so those are some of the things that we have to make sure that people understand that this is our backyard. And, you know, they, they were more than happy to invite them to enjoy it, but please don't trash it and take, mm-hmm. you know, respect it. So that's right. going to be a huge part of our messaging. John, I know you're probably in, in your position, not allowed to have favorite children, but, you know, summer's coming up. You're you're a big skier, but what is your favorite thing to do in the area during the summer, if you're allowed to say? You know, it's really funny because, um, you know, I always I try and tell people that summer is probably harder for me to determine that because in the wintertime, my kids are on ski team. My daughter is a pretty hotshot uh, racer and 
um, you know, she's on snow five days a week up there and, and does online school. Uh, so it's easy. You know, I get up, I go to the hill, I ski and I go home uh, in the summertime. <laughs> in the summertime, I wake up and I say, OK, do we go hiking? Do we go fishing? Do we go biking? Do we go golfing? And it's harder to figure out what to do. So, you know, there there are certain things that I absolutely love around here. Um, I am a, a, a massive fan of the Lakes Basin. I think the walk around Convict Lake is probably one of the coolest places you could possibly uh uh, go where you can where you can be hiking around and looking up at Mount Morrison and mm-hmm. uh, right. turn around turn around look in the in the lake and look twelve feet down and see a huge trout fish uh, swimming around. So yeah. it's it's difficult and I don't know I don't know the answer to that because there's like I said it's an embarrassment of riches where you can walk out your door here and that's where our our whole no small adventure campaign for Mammoth Lakes tourism came from was when we interviewed uh, business owners and visitors and residents everything is outside your front door. You know, yeah. you don't have to drive 20 miles to go do something. Like I said, with, with, um, with things like rock climbing, it's a, it's, 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 there's world-class rock climbing around us, not too far away. And, and nobody has that flexibility to have all of those things within, you know, real literally steps of your front door. It's one of the reasons we're so lucky that we get to live here, right? <laughs> we... Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I always say my second home is my primary residence. <laughs> And we're very lucky to have it that way. So, John, we um, always ask our uh, guests to share with us what they're reading now. So now is that time. (laughs) What are you reading now, John? You know, I'm reading a very old book, which is uh, ridiculously in tune to everything that's going on right now. It's John F. Kennedy's Profiles in Courage. Oh, right. And, you know, JFK wrote that in 1955 in the heart of all the civil rights movement and all of the injustices that were going on back then. And it's really hard to see that we haven't learned anything. Yeah. You know, it's, it's an amazing book on leadership and it's an amazing book on how to work with people. And it's an amazing book on um, really just being good people and kind of putting the, the politics or the, the differences of opinion aside for the greater good. And so, you know, it's, it's, again, it's a book that was written in 1955 uh, you know, it's a Pulitzer Prize winning book, but it's it's just something that um, I would encourage anybody in a leadership role to read because it really does um, help you understand that it's a bigger picture than whatever you're looking at. Is it the first time you've read it? You know, it is. I, I, um, I've owned it for years and I just um, it's just been sitting on my shelf and I decided about a month ago that I needed to, to pick that up. And I, I'm I'm not one of these people that reads books uh, for fun. I, all of my books are business. All of my books are leadership. All of my books are, uh, you know, marketing. And they're and you know that's that's what I enjoy. And this one, just again based on the leadership side of things and being a good New Englander with with uh, Kennedy being <laughs> uh, the the king of the East Coast, um, <laughs> it's really it's it's really just um, it's just amazing to read what he wrote 1955 as a as a, as a I believe he was just a young senator at that point. Yeah. He didn't even. He probably had aspirations for the presidency because of his father, but uh, at that point, he was still just really kind of getting his feet wet in the in the uh, in the Senate. So, it really is one of the most compelling books written by a politician. You know, politicians write books right and left, especially if they're about to run for major office. Um, but this one is, to your point, has really stood the test of time, mm-hmm. and, and it's really relevant to the times we're living in currently in twenty twenty. It is, Christopher, and I think that's also that's poignant in the sense that it's disappointing that it's relevant. Yeah, you know, right. I, mean, I think I think the I think the leadership side of it is is definitely. I think the I think the things that they were dealing with back in in uh, 
1955, whether it's the you know the the um, the civil rights or even in in his presidency with the bad pigs and all the different uh, arms race with Russia and all these different pieces, you know the world the world sadly hasn't changed a whole lot since this book was written in 55. And know, technology is- alone aside. Yeah, and I think um, to your point, John, we kind of lull ourselves with the incremental changes over the years into thinking the world has changed. But you know, you have a year like this year, and you think, "Wow, we really haven't progressed all that much at all." So, um, yeah, I greatly yeah. recommend it. Well, well, we'll put a link to that in our in our show notes as well as the Visit Mammoth website. And we we really appreciate your time, John. Thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for another episode of the Oxygen Starved podcast. Um, You know, you can find us on Instagram at O2Starved. Feel free to leave comments or ask us questions or at oxygenstarvedpodcast.com, which you can also read us and you'll also find the show notes. We'll put links to the books that we've discussed, Visit Mammoth and other resources up there as well. And until then, take some time. Keep aware of your mental health as well as your physical health these days as we enter into summer and open up and start to meet each other in person again. And stay safe. We'll be back in a couple weeks with a fresh episode. See you soon. Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Star. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. In Competech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 License.